right, welcome, welcome, welcome to the uh, yet-to-be-named South Dakota Game Fishing Parks podcast. I'm your host, referee, guide, uh, Chris Hull. i uh, got a really cool guest here. If you're a South Dakotan who's got any interests in uh, all things outdoors, uh, this guy doesn't really need much of an introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyway. He's a California boy by birth, Vietnam vet, special agent for the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, former head of South Dakota Game Fishing Parks, former South Dakota Game Fishing Parks commissioner, and the scourge to every spoonbill duck and smallmouth bass that he's ever come across. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Cooper. Uh, Coop, I couldn't take resist to take that shot at you, but uh, thanks for taking the time. I know you're busy uh, going all over, but... Uh, you know, uh, to start off, and it's, this is way off topic and you have no idea this is coming, but uh, I told the world you're a California kid and you're growing up there in the 60s, mm-hmm. um, you know, surfing, killer street rod cars, American graffiti, the music. Ever run across any famous musicians like the Doors or the Beach Boys or anything like that before they were big when they were running around in your neighborhood or anything? Or Yeah, actually, I used to go down to the Balboa Stadium, and uh, at that time, the Beach Boys uh, were were called the, the Wilson Trio. <laughs> and they weren't even the Beach Boys yet, and they would play surfer stomp music at the Balboa Stadium. So, And then from there on, you know, they morphed into the Beach Boys. And and at that time, the big the big surf band was Dick Dale and the Delta. Right. And uh, so yeah, uh, we were right in there. White Levi's, Hirachi sandals, the whole nine yards. Yep, I was right there. Somehow that doesn't surprise me. Where where did you get your love growing up there? Where did you get your love of being you know hunting fishing? Where did that come from? I think it came from my family more than anything else. Uh, you know, we, we were in an orange grove. We were born in San Bernardino, and my dad and my granddad uh, both shared property in the little town of Highland, California, which is not very far from Redlands for people that might know a little bit about Southern California. And we had uh, 195 acres that we we, we, we or- ranched oranges, naval oranges primarily, and uh, then we had lemons both. We had uh, about 45 acres of lemons. And then we had specialty fruit like avocados and peaches, uh, nectarines, uh, all that kind of stuff was, was stuff that we, um, that we ranched. So anyway, the bottom line is, is that uh, I kind of grew up with a, with a BB gun. I started with a BB gun. In fact, my dad used to whip my butt pretty good because <laughs> I'd go out and shoot the bullfrogs in our, in our <laughs> watering pond and they'd go into the side uh, where the water we'd draw the water and and it'd clog it up in there and he'd come he would put some knots on my head for doing that but uh, I started you know just hunting squirrels uh, ground squirrels they were all around our we had some levees on some places that, and and the squirrel ground squirrels were up there my dad didn't want them he he liked squirrels and he didn't really want them running amok but he, we'd keep them thinned out hunted jackrabbits uh, in the edge of the groves and all that stuff but the big thing for me was when I got old enough to um, we didn't have hunter safety back in those days. You just kind of got your hunting license at, at age 15 in Southern California at that time. And then I started hunting quail. We had an old olive orchard that was north of us, and a guy by the name of Craig Hornbuckle and Richard Wilsey and myself, we all three of us grew up uh, hunting quail. And so it was just something that we did. We were, we were farm kids, and that's what we did. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's a similar story to a lot of us. I think we can relate to that. You know, I'm, uh, we all have our famous, our famous places where, you know, the halcyon days back in our heads, you know, for me, yeah. it was Northern, Northeast South Dakota, but, uh, so yeah, that's cool. Um, 
So you're famous for your stories, uh, and and I've told you a couple times we only got thirty minutes, so we got to keep it <laughs> reined short, in a little bit. Sure. And in fact, a couple of our employees, when I told them you were going to be one of my first first uh, podcast guests, they were like, "Oh, it's going to be long form, huh?" So, <laughs> right. But uh, famous for your stories, and and I know you've got some great ones for when you were uh, an investigator with the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, got anything you could share? That I mean, I know a couple that are in my head, but. Well, you know, we did a lot of work uh, back in those days. I was with uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, from 1974 until I retired in uh, 95 and went to work for Governor Janklow as the secretary. So I, I was all over the country. I worked in 38 different states during my tenure and, you know, serving warrants and helping with takedowns and doing some undercover investigations and all the things that all special agents do during that course of time. But probably the funnest ones, the funniest ones, took place when we were out in a field working. Mm -hmm. And no place in the world is like Louisiana. And we used to spend a lot of time down there in uh, the latter seasons. We'd work up here up north and then follow the birds down, uh, down to Louisiana, down to the Delta, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And so I was down there working one time with Ed Thibodeau, who's an absolute Cajun. And uh, he and I were working on a place where a whole pile of oil oil executives had a private duck club in one of the marshes. And so they were shooting and banging around, and they have a gamekeeper that comes out there with an airboat and picks up the ducks, and we're trying to count these ducks and who killed what. And uh, I was telling Ed, I think, well, right now I know that one blind's over limit, and I think the other blind is right at the limit, so you watch them, I'll watch these guys. About that time, some roseate spoonbills come flopping by, and, of course, they're pink, and they've got a big spatulated bill. And I said to, to Theobald, I said, you don't think they're going to shoot? Well, boom! Down the rose, roseate spoonbills come. And of course, they're a protected bird. They're not waterfowl. Right. So... He said, he says to me in his old broken Cajun, that's enough. <laughs> so out he goes over the top with the airboat. And when we come over the top, they know the different sounds of the airboats and they start scattering. All these coonasses start scattering. <laughs> and um, so I tick up, uh, I drop Tebow off and he's got these three guys. And I'm, I'm after the guy who went to get one of these uh, roseate spoonbills and he sees me coming. So when I get to him, I, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have this bird. And I know he stomped it someplace, you know, in the mud. And so he's walking along, and he's talking to me uh, 100 miles an hour. And I said to him, get in the boat. So he gets in the, in the airboat, and we turn around and go back. And I see this bill sticking up that he'd stomped, a spatulated bill. I, I was kind of mad at him anyway. So I, reached, I got off the, off the uh, chair and got down and threw the, threw the bird, got a hold of it, threw it in the boat, rinsed it off like that. And I held it up, and I said, you know... What kind of a game bird is pink? And the guy just sit and looked at me and saw, I thought I'd made my point, and I threw it down on the bottom of the boat. We went back, and we got all these guys, and we're lined up, and we're writing them all these citations and season birds and all this kind of stuff, and about 20 minutes went by. And all of a sudden, this guy says to me, Flamingos! <laughs> so... So I said, no, no, nice try, but flamingos aren't game birds game either. Birds either. So he thought I was questioning about ID. Well, so I don't know if the point ever got made, but that's it. Working out in the field really did have a lot of humor to it. Right. And uh, you, had to, you had, to, had to keep your sense of humor. That's what made the job uh, a great job. And so, yeah, we did spend, and we spent a lot of time together too. You know, all of us agents and the state wardens, all were close, I mean, very close. And I knew a lot of the state wardens' wives and families in the same way up and down the whole flyway. So we spent a lot of hours being gone from our own families to do that. Sure. 
what what's lie bring up a point in it and this one isn't even on my cheat sheet of paper though and, and you were a warden and, and you were in charge of our wardens for a long time and it, it's and you and i've had some of these brief conversations but so a warden you know so for game fishing parks they're they're basically one of the head faces of our department yeah and right. the things that they do you know they all have their place and built into the the north american model and and just a lot of people view you know i'm on my i'm on my vacation and this is a harmless crime and it, how how do you break that balance of having to write a ticket to somebody but also being a public face and still being able to go you know i live in Preshill, south dakota and i'm a game warden I, i'm gonna have to go eat with this guy True. um my True. kid goes to school with church. their kid mm-hmm. go to church great example um how, where's that line? How do you? Well, it's it's it is one of the most difficult jobs that uh, I know people uh, think of it, in, and some people think of it in terms of, well, there's just a fish cop out there. What a pain that guy is! And then the other folks are looking at it from the standpoint of um, some glamorous law enforcement uh, job. There's just a lot of all of it in in between, and you, you got to know when to be. A counselor or a person that's a public relations oriented uh, all the way through because you have people who really do make mistakes. They make honest mistakes. They, or some cases, they're just not doing their due diligence. They don't read the regs. They don't read the book right. and they're out there, uh, you know, and even even that's not, you know, that's that's not a true excuse because it's responsibility, and all of the court cases will tell you that it's your responsibility. If you're going to execute this privilege, you have to know what you're doing, and that includes things like identification of wildlife, too. But on the other side of the coin comes this situation where you got people that are out there, and a lot of people say, well, I don't think that's but about 1% of the people that are actually, you know, intentionally violating and taking more than the limit. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's more than you think there are, and it's unfortunate that that is. But it is that way, and especially this situation now where we have what we call a hotspot psychosis, and for the lack of a better term. We have all of these cell phones. We have all of the equipment, ET, to get together that makes the old moccasin telegraph look like kids play. So now you got these guys calling in and say, we really whacked the walleyes up at Shiny Slough, and we're going back again tomorrow, and you guys ought to come in, and, uh, and next thing you know, get them while they're hot. And that that is part of the warden's uh, issue when they when they have those kinds of things. Those wardens are focused on the guys that are intentionally violating, and they should be. And it's misunderstood by a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, about how important it is to have law enforcement officers who can run that range. Right. No, we're so, good. That's anyway. Bottom line is, is is that it's a it's a job that has all kinds of of uh, ups and downs and and highs and lows as you go through your work day and mm-hmm. you, it's it takes a person with a good personality and uh the way and, and also an inquisitive person and then somebody who's highly dedicated to do it it's a, not an easy job it's sure a tough and, deal you know and, and the funny thing is when you it, i was going to talk about this later but uh you know you hired me for game fishing park so in 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 indirectly or directly what was i thinking this, this podcast is your fault <laughs> Um, you know, but we talked about, you know, it's that growth of the hunter. Um, you know, when when you first interviewed me and I knew you before that and I said, well, can I still, you know, spotlight spotlight deer? And can I go spear northerns at Red Iron Creek? And can I, you know, drag a chain and shoot pheasants out of the window? And you said, no. I said, well, don't worry about me not 
missing work for hunting and fishing because I nobody's going to want to go with me. Right. But you know that's the that the growth of you know that that growth circle of a of an outdoorsman or an outdoorswoman. Do you think that's still there? That that growth where you start, you know, and and it's all about man. It's I want to put up numbers, and then it's I want to you know I I want to shoot a big buck or whatever, and then it's man I need to travel, and then it's you know that full circle. Do you think that's still there? Or? I I think it's still there for the people that are dedicated to the the sport of hunting, and and I, it's some people say well it's not a sport, you know, and there there's this varying differences in opinion but the bottom line is that if you're dedicated to the outdoors and you all of a sudden you get to the point where it isn't just the shooting you know it's the understanding of the critter i don't care if you're a fisherman there's always something to learn about where are they will they hit why are they there and it's the same way with pheasants and the same way with deer and all of the things that are out there uh, will test you if you're doing it right now if you're into gimmicks you know, feeding them, uh, you know, shooting them late, uh, all all that kind of stuff, and you you want to go forego the fair chase aspect of this, then in essence, I think you've just cheapened the whole experience, and and that's sure. what that's I mean uh, that, that's that's a law enforcement officer's perspective, sure. mm-hmm. but it's also the perspective of most of these people you're talking about that graduated to sure. the point of you know being out there for the experience and to. And to fool them on your own. I right. mean, it's that you know, woodsmanship skills are something that I think are are uh, is gratifying. Right. If you if you're good, if you're good at what you do, and you're successful in a fair chase, then you've kind of graduated to that point of saying, I don't need to really shoot this thing. I'm right. at the point now where I, you know, I could have shot him, but I didn't. Right. Hmm. Those are. So you were the boss at Game Fish for how long? 12 years. 12 years. Uh, yeah, eight years under Governor Janklow and four years and a month or two under Governor Dugard. Or, excuse me, Governor Rounds. Governor Rounds. Yeah, Governor um, Rounds. You, you got to go through some, some thick and thin things, and that's that's the really the nature of probably most game fish agencies, whether it's, you know, the walleyes on Mille Lacs or, or you know, whatever, deer in, in Wisconsin. Talk a little bit about some of those difficult issues, you know, lockouts or the mountain lions. Mm-hmm. And and what did you always, you know, because I always thought you knew where you were going. And, and I know you knew, or you at least thought you knew where you were going. And, and what did you, on those tough times, and, you, and you're getting beat up, and, and what what do you go back to? What do you lean on to kind of get you through that? You know those. All right, this is the direction we're going. But talk about a couple. You know, you don't have to get. Well, too there's deep a couple right in that in that uh, list that you just kind of mentioned. There's a couple that really tested. Uh, I think uh, all of our management team. It's just not just your uh, secretary. Right. You've got the division of wildlife and division of parks. And at that time, we had the division of Custer State Park, right. Raleigh Nome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, you, I came up uh, through all of the work that I have done uh, with the being ingrained with the North American model of wildlife management and the ethic of fair chase and the and the full belief that wildlife is a public trust resource and it's supposed mm-hmm. to be managed for as many people as equally as possible and that was at the heart of almost all of our uh, all of our uh, division directors and the and the and uh, the secretary. When we got into this situation about um, licenses in West River right. and the transfer of licenses and uh, 
the selling of licenses over the internet and all the right. stuff that we used to see in the legislature and all the stuff the commission had to deal with, I always tried to maintain this attitude and this idea that if it's not going to do the general public the best have the general public have the best opportunity and the best chance of being able to enjoy that wildlife and that fisheries equally, then there's wrong, something wrong with it. And and the West River folks, in the, not all, but the people who were loud and you know had formed their uh, their group of people, right. all felt as though that the state owed them those licenses. We feed them; they're our deer. All those kinds of things. I just disregarded that. I told them no. I went out time, stood up in front of all of them at Sturgis, stood up in front of all of them at Bison, and said, they are not your deer. They are the public's deer to be managed by game, fish, and parks. And they are not your antelope. Same thing. And this issue of whether or not that you're going to get transferable licenses or any kind of a special privilege so you can commercialize by having outfitting, leasing, all that kind of stuff, uh, I'm not going to condone it. Uh, I know that there is a, uh, uh, a state attorney general's memorandum that talks about this issue, and I'm not going against that, and uh, that's the way we're going to do business. Sure. And so did, it bef- did I befriend? Did I, was I befriended? No. No way. Because you're telling them something that they think exists in property rights, and I'm telling them that it's about the public trust issues. And that goes through a lot, has been through a, a lot of con, uh, you know, conflicts and controversy in a lot of states that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. So in, in my mind, um, we did what we needed to do. And that was that we formed the West River Issues Working right. Group. And we went out there and spent a huge amount of time and effort. Doug Hansen, myself, Doug Hofer was with us, even mm-hmm. though Doug didn't have to go do that because mm-hmm. he was with Parks. But we were looking at ways to try to correct this. And we got almost every one of those corrected, except for the remaining concern over whether or not they should get some kind of significant license out of this. But between mountain lions and prairie dogs and uh, the trespass, marking school lands, all of those kinds of things, we settled, except for the issue of the licenses. And the minority report for the West River Issues Working Group talked about they still would like to have those licenses. I think that's wrong. And uh, I, I've said that over and over, and I've maintained that today. Mm-hmm. So it'll be a fight, and you always got legislators who, frankly, are not knowledgeable about the public trust. They don't understand the public trust doctrine. They don't understand the laws of this state as it relates to public trust. And that came up once again in this meandered waters issue. They do not know it. They don't understand it. Uh, John Davidson and myself, we wrote a paper that explained the public trust in pretty much plain language. We sent it into the task force that um, uh, Quam, Lee Quam, uh, was head of. And to, never got a, we never got an acknowledgement that they'd received it, and they never talked about it, and they never questioned us about it. And what, and what ha- happened is the settlement, at least in my mind, the settlement that was agreed to took in, not, did not take into consideration what the Supreme Court said is that that water is a public trust. That needs to be acknowledged by the legislature, and it has not been yet. So, anyway, bottom line is you got to have you got to have your own um, moral directive, and you better be uh, knowledgeable, and you be- better have been well read, and have the ability to quote the court cases. All those things that justify that side of the argument. Sure. The the one thing that I was kind of 
took away from you is is and it's I don't think it's human nature even but it's we had some of these conflicts and I was in the room a lot of times when when you know there was some finger pointing and voices got raised and stuff but it always seemed like and not just you you know uh, you brought up Doug Hansen and and George Vandell and and you know even if we're going to disagree we've got to try to figure out where to go where to go how to mitigate because it, this is a small state yes it is. and uh once again i'm you know i if i don't know you i know your cousin or <laughs> your sister-in-law or, or something and that that was always that was kind of eye-opening it, it's not it is. easy and there is there is compromises to be made uh but i think that at some point in time you have to recognize that you have to be careful that you can set some significant precedences where the legislature doesn't understand the fact that this was a one-in-a-kind type of situation, and then they right. use that as a precedent, should never been used as a precedent, because the issues are different. Right. And then you got to go over there, and you got to argue with these people. So it's, 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 but it's not, it, we're, it's not just South Dakota. Every state director I knew, and I was president of the Association of Fish and Wildlife right. Agencies, everybody that we talked to had these same kinds right. of things. Yep. So it's politics. Sure. Um, so now, just shifting gears a little bit, uh, you were also on the the commission, the GFP commission. Mm-hmm. How different is that than being a being the secretary? <laughs> well, it it is different, uh, and I didn't really know for sure. Didn't really uh, think of it as being all that different. But here's the thing: you really have a citizens board there, and it's more forum oriented. In other words, you have all of the all the voices that are that are there from the different parts of the state. So as whoever might represent Sioux Falls, as an example, would have much different uh, issues that he's, he or she are hearing about than the people, as an example, might be from Aberdeen or from out in Rapid City. So they bring different perspectives to the issues and the arguments. But the other thing is almost all of them, all that, that commission, the big challenge is to really, truly listen and do your homework. In fact, commissioners who don't do their homework before you get to that commission aren't really effective because they just kind of all of a sudden kind of vote on the emotion of the issue or what's been happening with the uh, public forum, etc. So if you do the if they do that uh, do that homework, uh, it'll be fine. But I think the biggest difference overall, Chris, was probably just the fact that everybody there at the commission was kind of unified in terms of what they knew their goals were going to be. Eventually, they're going to have to make a decision. They're going to have to make a decision. So how do we compromise? Where do we go here? We wonder. In the department, it's more, uh, it's more kind of battle-oriented. First of all, you got to be thinking about, well, if we do this, how much is it going to cost? How many people do we have to have? How long can we do this project? Uh, two years? Uh, what's the governor going to think in terms of regards to that? It's all those kinds of more political type situations. And so it's a little bit more smooth and a little more easier to work in the commission. Uh, the the days that I spent in the as a secretary, I don't think I put in a week much that was less than 65 hours or 70 hours a week. Sure. It's, it's just a huge job. You know? yeah. um, and just kind of staying on this commission thing, um, you know, we've done a lot since I came on board 10, 12 years ago, whenever that was, um, to kind of make sure that 
our our avid sportsmen and sportswomen, and not even necessarily the avid ones, but to be aware of what the commission does, how it works. Um, but there's still, I hear it a lot, especially from you know people that are just talking to me on the street or whatever, really don't think that their voice is heard. Uh, whatever they say doesn't really matter, and maybe they don't even truly understand the process. It, it, you know, in your opinion, you know, you're, you know, you got, just talk about that kind okay. of aspect, that public feedback and, and. One of the hardest things, you know, and I, when I retired from the commission, um, I really enjoyed uh, the people. I, I really enjoyed the staff of folks at, and, and all of the game fish and parks employees are really top notch people. And I enjoyed being around them. Lots of laughs. Okay. And I enjoy the commission and the commissioners, but I do know that um, neither a, a new secretary or a new commission likes to have some old geezer hanging around, uh, telling them like the way it should have been or was back in the old days. So I, I've tried to you know stay away from it as much as I can, mm-hmm. unless I get a telephone call or something from some of the guys or some of the commission, and I've done that and talked to them individually. But I am surprised because I've been kind of sheltered as being both, uh, well, all the way through my career. Um, when you get back to the public, which I am now, just fish and hunt and take my grandkids out and all that, you you don't think about the commission. And, and, and most people in South Dakota don't really even understand what the job is and why you'd have, have a citizen's overview, a, a oversight board like the commission. And that goes back to this public trust thing. Even our own, our brethren, our sportsmen, um, and, and folks that are interested in the outdoors, really don't quite understand that the reason we have a commission is because we have a public trust system here set up by the legislature and by the governor to make sure that the administration of this big public trust, this natural resource that we we have, uh, is done correctly and that we have public input. So I would say to anybody who's listening to this, and, and I do have said this in a couple of presentations that I've made since I retired, was it? It's up to you. Your responsibility as an individual sportsman, you got to make your th- you got to make your thoughts known. Don't give up, man. Because this thing, this politics, this is a tough go. It's hard on us if we don't have proper representation. And you know, I talked a little bit about this decline in hunter numbers. And National Public Radio had a, a deal on this late March, early in in early May, or April, that really talks about the heart of the matter, and that is, is that we're losing hunter participation and we're losing dollars for conservation right. when we do that. And nobody seems to be ready to try to figure out what's the replacement for, for funding that. Right. It's it's up in the air. And so I, our sportsmen got a responsibility. Mm-hmm. So we still have a resource. We're lucky that we have a resource enough to be able to, and we have to protect it. We should protect it. And that's a big issue with the farm bill. Yep. Big issue. What, uh, what about... You know that issue of the the R three. The you know the, we got this baby boomer bubble, and whether you know there's argument over whether it's a false bubble or not. You right. know, it, but they're coming up. You're one of them. I mean, yeah. you're you're motivated, but there's going to be a day where where I'm going to come and feed you, you know, uh, corn <laughs> corn goose Pablum. corn goose that I shot, and you're going to be mad at me <laughs> and wipe the corner of my mouth. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know, the, the, these are things that that I know we're thinking of, and it, it literally is every day. How do we reach? 
maybe not necessarily, um, you know, your grandkids or, or my kid because they're going to go do that stuff because that's what we do. Right. But how do we reach those kids or even, you know, some of this, uh, you know, I don't even want to use the word, but the millennials who, who are very well, you know, very well, they know where they want to go. They might be moving around a lot, but they like being outdoors. Mm-hmm. They like doing those things. How do we connect those dots or how, you know, how do we like the, this is, this is probably one of the most difficult questions we're in essence we're trying to take what we grew up with as a heritage in some cases almost like a religion i mean with my dad when we were i mean we were going to go fish on the weekends we're going to go camp this is what we do this is how we enjoy our recreational time and our family time this is what we do we're outside Mm -hmm. outdoors now we're going to go try to interject ourselves into the life of some 23-year-old millennial who may like bike riding because his other peers do it, may like uh, hiking and walking or rock climbing or some of those other kinds of bird watching, you know, quote, non, uh, non-consumption, non-consumption wildlife enjoyment. And, and then you're going to say to him, uh, how about, let's, I'll take you out and let's go fly fishing. Well, most millennials look at fly fishing as being kind of a gentleman's, you know, almost the wine right. of uh, right. W-I-N-E, the wine yeah. of, right. of the outdoor, you know, creme de creme de creme. Right. But to, 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 to go out and shoot a white-tailed deer uh, is a little harder to do. You can't just take them, you can't just get them and take them and have them enjoy that unless they have some kind of background knowledge and some right. some understanding of the skills, etc., that go into that kind of a hunt. And um, and for me, um, I don't know how you get in the heads of the millennials. I think our the challenge that we have now is are those the ability of us to take kids that are not in the millennials yet right. that group that age group because we know what if we don't do if we don't aren't successful with these kids we really got troubles in the future so i don't know my own grandson at different times has uh, uh said to me and he's a hunter he loves to hunt and he loves to fish uh has said to me well you know i'm going to go to college and i probably won't be able to you know get back here very much and and I, but i i want to be they want to be with you they want to spend that time with you, and they want to learn something. And um, unfortunately, our our parents, uh, many parents of today, don't have the time to do it. Right. They're both working. They're tired, and they got a weekend to recuperate. They don't want to take the to go out and go camping. Right. So I I don't have a good answer, Chris. I know that in the three R's symposiums, those are the kinds of things that are being guessed at. Nobody for sure knows how we can do this uh there's guys that are studying it but i don't know if they know exactly whether or not we how we can be successful i, th- I think you, you touched on it a little bit when you're talking about you know um peer you know that their buddies do it and their peers do it and we as as a department are really focusing on some of that kind of things where it's peer mentorship it's the same age yep. you know me taking a 45 year old who's never hunted before or never fished before and saying all right let's go out try to learn some of that stuff. Um, there's a lot, there's a push for that. There's there's also that connection with the, like the locavore movement and knowing where your food came from. Right, exactly. That's a strong, strong connection for a lot of millennials and a lot of people my age. I mean, um, so 
there's there's some hopes there and we you know we kind of pick and choose and we're going down the road and and just like every other agency but it's something that's you know it's on the front of my mind because I look at my daughter and go well you know I want to have her have some of these opportunities that I had you know and whether she shoots a deer or not I, I don't care but the ability to do it the knowledge to do it and hopefully the passion goes with it and and you know carrying forward to there so it it's something on on the heads and I'm not just picking on you I'm going to basically ask anybody I got right. on this podcast you know just looking for an answer <laughs> and, and and I and I would be too because I think it's uh you know as the person who wrote uh the articles uh in for the National Public Radio uh pointed out we know that this decline and the loss of that revenue is now a fact. Oh, yeah. It was being guessed at a few years ago, even when I was uh, secretary, is being guessed at. Now we know it's a fact. And and we better be looking at what do we do as a fix because that fact is going to continue to get right. tougher and tougher and tougher to solve. And now, and if you wait too long, you would never solve it. So we need we need... So people like yourself and the new professionals that are involved in wildlife management to be able to focus on that. That's right. going to be, you know, I I had the the privilege, frankly, of primarily being pretty well off in terms of budget. We had we had pheasants, uh, we had deer, we had all that stuff. So it helped us in terms of our ability to maintain a budget. Uh, but I can tell you that. Um, that will be the number one issue in terms of our ability to sustain good conservation work. You have to have funding and you have to have dollars to create the staff, pay for the staff that can do the work. Well, we're going to wrap it up, but I got one last question. So okay. we're on 100 years of pheasant hunting in South Dakota. Yeah. 1919, Spink County, two day season. How many tickets did you write that day? <laughs> hey, that's not that's not fair, man. I know I go back a ways, but I wasn't I there at the I, opener. I you couldn't know? resist. I couldn't got to tie it back into a hundred days, well, yeah. or a hundred years. Well, thanks, Coop. I appreciate the time. Uh, I'm sure I'll have to do some editing because, like anything, uh, you and I getting together is never short form. But appreciate the time, and and I wouldn't be too surprised if I have you back on. So. Hey, cool. Thanks, um, boss. Anytime. You're present. Great thanks. deal. Without seeing how to me How can time blind just pass by without seeing by to me? Hi, this is Thea Miller Ryan at the Outdoor Campus. I'm at the Outdoor Campus in Sioux Falls, and today I'm visiting with one of our regular volunteers out here. His name is Dave, and Dave has some really cool experiences. He's been a lifelong outdoorsman, and he knows more about the outdoors than I think most people have forgotten in their lifetime. Dave also used to be a high school principal. He is a scout leader. He's been all kinds of things, but he had one experience I want to tell you guys about. It was a kind of a scary story. And I will tell you that it has a happy ending, so don't tune out now. Um, <laughs> but Dave, um, first of all, welcome. How are you? Oh, thank you. I'm fine. Good, good. So Dave, tell me about the time when uh, one of your scariest things ever happened to you. <laughs> well, I hesitate to do that because this is really one of those don't tell your mother kind of moments. Uh, we happened to be out West River, the end of the West River deer season, Three of my sons and I and a good friend and uh, 
Oh, the day was terribly cold. The wind was blowing, and we happened to cross a draw, and there was just a good-sized herd of mule deer in there. Uh, we got some deer down, and unfortunately, the bank was too steep to get down and to retrieve the deer. So uh, two of my sons said, well, Dad, we'll go down and start field dressing. We can get down this side, but we know we can't get them back up. And then you can drive around to the other side. Uh, it looks like a gentle slope over there, and we'll pull the deer up and get them into the pickup. Not a problem. We, we'll just proceed with that. So two of them went down the hill with their uh, backpacks and uh, their skin field dressing knives and some rope, and away they went. And we hopped back in the pickup and proceeded to drive around the draw. Well, the problem was the draw didn't end, and there were fences stretched tight. We not, could not get through. Not always as easy as it looks. Oh, it? <laughs> it was terrible. Meanwhile, the wind's blowing, the sun's going down, and out there when the sun goes down, it's one minute it's light and the next minute it's pitch dark. Yeah, I've been in situations like that. It's, it's just dark. And the temperature drops about 20 degrees automatically. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, there are my two boys down in this draw, and now I'm not sure where we are. Because we're driving with headlights only, they're down in that draw where it's even darker. Finally, we got out through a gate, not having any idea where we were for sure, but we could see a light. So we proceeded down this area between these two fences, and there was a little house tucked away. I went out and knocked on the door, and there was a gentleman who lived there on his own, and he goes, oh, man, you guys are really messed up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and we told him what had happened, and he goes, I don't know how you're going to find them again. Oh, no. But he said, uh, let me get some fencing pliers, and I'll get you in through there. And he said, I'll go back with you, and we'll see if we can find the kids. The only consolation that I had, both of these boys had been in my scout troop, And when they went down that hill, they had survival kits with them, which meant they had water. They had uh, space blankets to help keep them warm, to protect them from the wind. They had some uh, power bars for some food and to build some calories. They had some small first aid kits. Really, they had everything they needed. They had two or three different means of starting a fire. Uh, and down in that draw, they could have done that because they'd have been out of the wind. And the other thing, it gave them the confidence to know, hey, we can do this. We, If Dad can't get down to us until morning, we know that we can survive here overnight. Wow, that must have been some relief to you. Oh, it was. I was still concerned about finding them, but I knew that no matter what happened, they were going to be all right. They, they had the right they tools knew to be how okay. To take care of themselves. They had the right tools. It wasn't you know, high poundage kind of equipment, but they knew what they needed. Uh, We kept driving, and then we'd stop and turn off the truck and listen, nothing. Uh, Drive further and further, not a sound. Suddenly we stopped, and we could hear a whistle, which they had, and then a couple rounds fired from their guns. And the exhaust on this pickup was loud. It was... (laughs) (laughs) It was obscene almost, but uh, we traveled then further north along this draw, and uh, suddenly we could see a light down in the bottom of that draw. They had one of their flashlights out, waving it around, and then I heard this plaintive, 
Dad! <laughs> so we stopped and then went down, and it was cold. We just, but we had these deer to field dress. Uh, sure. The gentleman that we'd picked up and was so helpful to us uh, assisted, and nice. he said, I'm going to get you guys back to the road and then go home. <laughs> he said, Nobody who lives around here would be out here in this kind of weather. He, he said, you have to be smarter. But he said, I'm so glad that this is in the duck well. So we yeah. uh, we got the boys out. They were glad to get back. We all slept very well that night. I bet you did. But, uh, but it, again, it's a case of being prepared. If you're prepared, you can get through just about anything. Uh, had they not had that equipment and not been dressed appropriately, it could have been a really, really bad situation. Where, where are some good places for people to get prepared? I mean, obviously, the, they learned that those skills from you and from the Boy Scouts, but are there other ways that people can learn how to be a prepared person when they go out hunting? Well, I think you need, there's some people that teach those kinds of classes as part of the Hunt Safe class. Mm-hmm. Also online. But part of it's practicing. You need to go out, well, even if it's in your own backyard, to try it and really do it. You can read about it all you want to, and I've had all kinds of survival books. But until you actually try it and experience it, you don't know just how hard it can be. I can imagine. I can imagine. Sounds like a lot of really good advice that you have. Um, we learn a couple lessons from the story. We learn, you know, be prepared. So they went down there with their backpacks full. They were prepared. They knew how to how to make it should you not find them that night. Um, and it also sounds like um, one of the things that stood out to me is that you had a good relationship with that nearby landowner, too. And knocking on doors is always a good thing. It's always a good way to meet people and look at the friend you made. And, uh, you know, he's probably who helped you save your kids. It is. And one of the things I've learned in my old age is that uh, no matter how hard it can be, I have never asked anyone for help. Wow. And been refused. Oh, that's cool. That is a really good... If it's something that you really, really need, don't be afraid to ask. Because most people have a a soft spot and they will... They will assist in any way that they can. There's a few old grumps out there, but we get used to them. <laughs> Hopefully too, we don't meet them. Yeah. It, oh. uh, no, but he really made the difference for us because in the dark, in strange territory where we were out there, uh, I don't know that we'd have found them until morning. I think they'd have been all right until morning, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, it was certainly better working out the way it did. Well, good. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for telling that story. And hopefully people will learn from it, too. And uh, they won't have a story like that that they'll have to oh, share absolutely. someday. absolutely. Not having it happen is much better. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Dave. Oh, I really welcome. appreciate your time. And uh, have a good hunt- hunting this fall. I will. If All I right. can get my tag, I'll be sad. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks. thanks. Yeah. I've been time flying just past by without seeing how to me. Just best power that's in All right, once again, that was the incredible and vivacious Thea Miller-Ryan from the Outdoor Campus in Sioux Falls. Uh, getting ready to wrap up episode two, I wanted to talk a little bit about youth and mentored hunting. We are in September, and that means all of our youth seasons and regular hunting seasons are really cranking up here. Uh, one of my favorite times of the year, and I'm sure it's 
for most outdoor people. Uh, one of their favorite times of the year as well. A um, little bit of confusion still about the new quote-unquote apprentice deer tag. That is um, something that's just basically been a name change. That is still your mentored tag for uh, deer hunters who are not hunt safe certified. Uh, if they are over the age of 12 or going to turn 12 this year, you can get them into a hunt safe class. Uh, visit our website and uh, click on education and hunt safe and find a class near you. But uh, just remember that effective July 1 of this year, there's no minimum age for a mentored hunting, but they must not be older than 15 years of age at the time of the hunt for that tag. If they're uh, older than 15, then they have to go to the youth tags or just a regular tag. But the mentored hunting, there's no age limit now. So we're getting a bunch of people asking, calling, um, talking to people, just really wondering how you introduce that kind of that next step. A lot of us have done it. Um, for me, it's been 40 years almost. And uh, so we're just getting a lot of people asking and um, ask you, you know, one of the things, uh, go to our go to our website, gfp.sd.gov slash youth dash mentored. Um, that will get you uh, really some good ideas, some good examples, uh, good ways to introduce, you know, um, the actual act of hunting to a, to a young child. Uh, it's a big deal. Um, and remember that it, it's, it's one of my favorite memories of, of all time that out in the woods with my dad and out on the sloughs with my dad, and my grandpa. Um, so there's, there, there's a lot of responsibility there and, and I don't want to lay it on too thick, but, but, uh, go to the website. We've got some good ideas for you and, and we're going to be coming out with more content and more, more programs. In fact, uh, I believe both our campuses, outdoor campus uh, in Sioux Falls and Rapid City in the next few weeks um, are going to have some classes on how to help become a mentor to your kid or to a mentored youth. Um, really good classes. So check out the outdoor campus pages and uh, you can find those. You can find those schedules. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to make one of those. I have a 10 year old daughter myself and, and uh, would really probably benefit from going to one of those. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll see you there. We're talking about recruitment, retention, uh, reactivation, you're going to hear me talk about this probably to each one of our guests that we have on on the GFP podcast. Um, it's kind of a big deal. It pays, it pays the bills. Um, really, hunters, anglers are the only people that have ever really asked to be taxed. Um, I know that sounds weird, but what Pittman Roberts dollars and Dingle Johnson dollars do is your license dollars pay for conservation and pay for access and pay for hatcheries and pay just about everything any state game fish agency does. Just a few numbers to break it down, just to just to put it in a perspective. A hunter participation peaked in the United States in 1982 with 17 million people. In 2017, it was down to 11.5 million people, and only four percent of the United States population hunts. One third of that 4% currently are baby boomers who we know are aging up and uh, buying fewer licenses and getting out of hunting altogether, whether it be by choice or the alternative. Uh, a couple of those things, I mean, y you know, if you look around, urbanization uh, is a big cause of that too. Uh, people move to the city. They don't have those landowner contacts anymore. They don't have those opportunities right out their back door anymore. So they don't hunt. So those are things that we think about every day. And that's why you're going to hear me ask that question to pretty much every guest, even if it's out of the blue, if they have any ideas on recruitment, reactivization and, and uh, retention. The other thing is being a mentor is, is a big step. It's not just a one-off, you know, hey, let's go out and fish and I'll take you fishing one time and, and expect that person to become a fisherman. They may have a great time and, and uh, you know, go home and tell their folks about it or 
or whatever, but it, it takes two to four years to become an effective mentor. So taking that step to become a a mentor to somebody is is a big one. And the other thing is what we're realizing is now that uh, kids are probably the toughest audience to reach to recruit. I mean, they're busy, they're doing things with their parents, they're doing things with their peer groups. Um, so really stressing that, asking people to think about uh, recruiting an adult to be, uh, to be a mentor to. You know, it's probably somebody in your own peer group that maybe has looked at, you know, your hunting and fishing activities and went, hmm, you know, and you've maybe had a few brief conversations. Encourage them to talk to them about it. Maybe invite them along. Uh, you don't have to take them to your secret fishing hole or your best spot right away, but that's the way we're going to get, we're going to get out of this hunter participation kind of free-for-all we're at right now. If if every hunter out there or every angler out there recruited just one person, we'd be fine. But that's tough to do. It's a lot to ask of, but something to think about when you're, uh, next time you're planning on going on an outing, um, take somebody new and not necessarily just a kid. But that's all we got for today. Episode two in the books. Once again, I'm Chris Hull. Uh, if you have any ideas for guests or topics, uh, shoot me a text at chris, C-H-R-I-S dot Hull, H-U-L-L at state dot S-D dot U-S. And that's all she wrote for episode two. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 